Looking to get involved in Web3? Polkadot is an open source protocol built for everyone. So much is happening in the ecosystem. Dozens and dozens of projects releasing updates daily. Polkadot today is the largest DAO. We're moving millions of dollars a month through a democratic voting process. There are lots of opportunities for you to pitch in and grow your career, grow your skills, and grow yourself, grow what it means to be part of a serious and exciting movement in blockchain. To learn more about how to get involved in the Polkadot ecosystem, head to polkadot.network or click the link in the show notes. Ladies and gentlemen, thanks for tuning into The Scoop. I'm your host, Frank Chaparro, editor-at-large at The Block, and very excited to have joining us on the other side of the mic today, friend of the show, friend of me, Laura Vidiella, longtime listener, first-time caller. Thanks for joining. So happy to unpack everything that's happening in the market as you see it from your, your seat bouncing around the world. Um, you know what we, you know, there's a lot to talk about, options, Obviously, the state of the market post uh, the FTX blow up. When are we gonna? When are we gonna move past FTX? I give it six months. I was just talking to um, Matt Balanceweg because um, he's starting something new. It'll actually be live by the time the show comes out, so we can talk about it. And he made a very good point, which was you'd imagine most stories after the financial crisis probably mentioned the financial crisis for at least like two years. Um, so maybe in crypto. Everything's shorter, so maybe another six months we'll still be talking about FTX. Anyway, maybe you can give us like an overview of what the options market looks like in crypto for folks who are maybe uninitiated. Who are the major players? Who's trading? Where's the liquidity sort of centered? Big question. I think we should separate it into three buckets, right? The, the first one being what are the platforms? or which are the platforms. The second one being what are the market makers? And the third one, we can talk about what falls into the traders, right? From asset management, uh, asset managers to VCs to all traders. As for the first one, um, it's evolved a lot in, uh, in the past five years. Uh, now we have both, I guess, the regulated and the, reg- and the unregulated centralized platforms as well as the DeFi platforms. On the regulated side is mostly CME, and then LedgerX uh, is also there. A couple more platforms, but not that much going on yet, but I can see things changing to the future. And on the unrelated side, we have Deribit being the, mar- the largest player, about 95% of the options volume. And uh, other smaller players uh, that are still picking up, uh, picking up actually got a lot, OKX being one of them, uh, Bit.com is also there. And then on the DeFi side, you have a mix of things from, um, well, it's it started more on the structured product side, although we can discuss if it's really structured product. Some of them are really achieving it, but Sega Finance, for instance, being like a classic example of, of a structured product. Ribbon Finance was the first one to do any of those vaults, and now they also have their own uh, exchange. So that's a bit of on the platform side what we have today, besides any OTC desks, which is kind of another bucket within the platform one if you want to talk about it like that those are what we call like list, listed options right on that side exactly yeah exactly um yeah then we have the market makers um as of course without them there would not be a market um 
larger players today, we have, I guess, we should go back into a bit historically what happened in the market making side, right? Because options at the very beginning was a bit of, um, of course, market makers, uh, you need to use algorithms because otherwise it's too hectic to lift everything that you see on the, or like do any anyway, trading directly on screens or listed options, as you well mentioned. But yeah, at the very beginning, there were a couple Dutch players, pretty large, that they're pretty private. So I'm going to leave it like that. And then that followed with QCP, Genesis Trading, and Ledger Prime as the largest market makers. Slowly, you had many more um, players come in from Blockfields to uh, Blocktech to, it feels like all have block names. But um, yeah, many other shops in Chicago. And, uh, and then over the past year, we've seen a big fallout of those, right? When I started Paradigm, um, the major market makers, maybe from five to 10, and by the end of my time there, at some point it was like 50, right? So of course, a lot of this have disappeared, especially a lot of the larger, more traditional ones have decided to pause until there's more regulatory certainty, but that's a bit on the market making side. If we move to the third bucket now, the trading side, uh, you can imagine all sorts of um, interests here from individuals that are high up individuals or just retail players from uh, asset managers, from hedge funds that they see an opportunity here, especially now that balls are a little low, we can talk about it more. But if you see potential in a particular asset, it's a good time to position yourself within, within um, buying call options, right? Because you can take advantage of the convexity over spot. Uh, another one that is interesting and maybe more unique to crypto is uh, VCs, right? If you compare traditional VCs to crypto VCs, you have the token component. Also, sometimes investments are also made in BTC and ETH. So they hold all of these different assets in their, in their treasury. Now, BTC and ETH are easier to hedge because listed, so it's easier to make a market. For the other assets, um, the major main alts, uh, you could, you, it's easier to, of course, those ones are easier to price as well. And those are the ones that many OTC devs are going after because they're pr pretty profitable if you get your hands on those. But then you also have a bunch of other questionable ones that are just, you know, it's more of like a, just sell it if you want to hedge it. You're basically saying um, like one unique market participant in this in this um, grouping of, of market players is VCs because unlike traditional VCs, they have exposure to a liquid asset that they have to head they can't just ride it up um exactly. without without sort of doing things in the background okay so okay i know you've been you've been you've been a bit busy um and not staring at the charts every waking moment of the day but it's it's a really interesting time for the space and i was hoping you could provide some historical context to what's going on we we've seen you know a plethora of headlines about um you know, declining volumes, you know, order book depth being poor, uh, liquidity being poor, market structure uh, being, uh, you know, under pressure, not necessarily as robust as it was, the credit market not being as robust as it was. But if you go to the block data dashboard, nice plug, the data dashboard, and you click on that options tab, those charts, those charts look pretty healthy, right? I mean, Volumes are, you know, they're not like up only necessarily, but they're relatively steady. If you look at December volumes for Bitcoin options, I think we're standing around 12 
billion for December 2022. And then this quarter, um, or at least, sorry, this month or last month, July, we were at around 20 billion. So there's two sort of potential theories there, right? Like people left spot because they're maybe a bit, um, you know, they, they may want to move to a more robust platform like CME that's federally regulated. But there's probably some other stuff going on um, in terms of just like trying to capture, you know, yield in a market that's um, where there's not a lot going on. So maybe you can unpack just like at a very basic level, like why do you think options markets see a lot of acti- activity in a bear? And then is there anything you're noticing right now um, that's shaping the way the options market looks today? Historically, summers are low vol, but I believe uh, my, my memory is right. This is the lowest we've ever been, right? Even uh, since... Um, crypto options started being a thing. Now, to add to that, you also have that the kind of audience or the kind of trade that you see often in crypto options specifically is um, counterparties collecting yield, meaning mostly they sell calls, right, as uh, one of the main strategies. Um, And that creates a lot of downward pressure that market makers also have to hedge for, right? Um, and then it's just like a vicious cycle that continues pressing down on the option side. And that keeps vol suppress? That keeps a vol low, yes. And then as for, and at least on the short term, right? If you look at it in the short term, uh, most of them are uh, sellers and then more in the long term, there might be a bit more of an upward activity. Uh, until, well, we need to break through this kind of trend to get out of this like vicious cycle. And there needs to be a catalyst for that. But for the volume side, something that I like to look at as well is the number of institutional players that are currently trading. And to look at that, uh, to me, the best way right now um, is just going on uh, Paradigm Stats a website. And then at the bottom there, you have like client engagement, I think they call it. And you can see um, the active customers on a weekly, on a monthly basis. And then I like to compare that with like last year, other year, like even within like periods of okay, November last year, that which was of course pretty hectic. May, June last year, they were also pretty hectic. And then just see those numbers. You can see more or less that it's dropped from all-time high. I think all-time high was something like 180 to 190. And now we are at levels of like 80 to 100 weekly and 150 to 160 monthly, right? So what does this tell me particularly? It tells me that on a weekly basis, if there's between 80 to 100 active traders, that has to be someone that's more of a vol vol player, right? Because otherwise, uh, I don't see someone that's trying to collect yield doing that more than on a monthly basis, unless um, they have an actual option share that like is looking at it continuously and and like recovering yield on a weekly basis, which could be as well, right? But in general, um, most like large asset managers they tend to do it more on a monthly basis, or they tend to do what it's called like calendar spreads, right? So then you like just keep it, um, uh, you spread it between like one month and three months, and then you keep rolling those over, right? And it's a much easier strategy for them than just having to be continuously on screen since it's, since it's not the only thing they do. So that's a reason why balls are low, but at the same time, volumes are keeping up, right? The number of players, it is a bit higher than uh, the premiums are still juicy enough where there's a lot of all this like selling pressure. 
uh, that keeps the volumes high, but the the, the volatility uh, it keeps it uh, it keeps it low. And it's this sort of thing that until there's a bigger catalyst that breaks us through, we're gonna keep it like this. And on the short term, all the different catalysts that we've had over the past one to two months, sort of, um, or the positive ones, they've proven to have no effect. So we need something bigger to break through that. And maybe, maybe BlackRock's ETF is the is the answer. Maybe we have the happening coming up in May, but that's still like almost a year from now, right? So question is, what's going to happen? And if things continue the way it is, uh, we might even go lower, unfortunately. Like it's pretty crazy, right? Like uh, I mean, the degree to which the market doesn't respond to news um, over the past few weeks has been like basically since the BlackRock spot ETF um, filing. Like the market just hasn't reacted to news because we are trapped in this like low vol cycle that just seems to be unshakable. And yeah, yeah, that's what I'm hearing like across across the street is that not across the street from my house, but across like crypto Wall Street is that it's going to take something really big because we're so like stuck in this in this sort of vicious cycle that you described. But one thing that's interesting that they've been saying is it's it's this miner or like some entity that's basically selling Deribit options and keeping everything three months and out under a really heavy cap. And like even when like fall tries to break out, like he just keeps smashing. And then that's like keeping the market pretty pretty much in this in this doldrums. That's uh that's we have this big ghost, I guess, in the office space that everyone is trying to figure out who it is. But yeah, we're in the street is that it's a miner somewhere in Asia. So uh that's the that's the war in the street. And uh Someone that's also going directly to Deribit, um, which is an interesting play. Um, and yeah, I think I saw if it's if it's the same person about two days ago. This person did what thirty percent of the ETH volume in uh, in one day. What do you think? What do you think is like? What? How would you describe his strategy or their strategy? Like to like you know the common person. Like what are they doing? Like there's this ghost in the market that's keeping vol low. Yeah, I mean, I believe, and it's a bit of what everyone sees um, on the crypto side, or I guess more the crypto trader, the crypto hedge fund, the sentiment, it's pretty bearish low term, right? So this person probably, or this group probably know this as well. And they're just trying to profit from the low, low term volatility this way. But on the long term, and you can compare this with like how, um, how things are trading on CME, there's more of a optimistic uh, market view, right? So, and you can see that also from BTC, the, the basis rate is still pretty high. It's about 8% um, in even the state of the market where like balls are dropping like this, right? So there's still on the long term, uh, there's a positive outlook to what's going to happen. But on the short term, if there's something to trade, it's, the, it's this downwards pressure. So I think that's uh, probably the mentality of this um, of this miner. Also, if it's a miner um, and they're doing all this like selling pressure, they're also hedging their exposure, right? So if they know that the prices are going to drop short term, it's just the smart thing to do for them because they need to cover their operations, right? Mythical Games is leaving its current blockchain to launch its new Mythos ecosystem on Polkadot. 
one of the most exciting projects deploying on Polkadot is Mythical Games. Today, they have an NFL branded game in the App Store and Google Play Store. They have a car racing game that they just released. Both of these games have NFT marketplaces on the back end. The Mythical Chain is the largest gaming chain by NFT volume. That right now is moving over to a blockchain secured by Polkadot. So over the next two months, Polkadot will acquire the largest gaming chain on the planet. This is an example, kind of at the core of Polkadot, of what can be built on this platform. To learn more about what's possible with Polkadot, head to polkadot.network or click on the link in the show notes. Maybe we talk a little bit about um, what Matt's doing. He's joining BitGo. And what BitGo is doing, Laura, is they're starting or they've already launched this thing called the BitGo Go Network. And the whole idea, I guess, around it is they're trying to create like a settlement layer that kind of links up all the exchanges. So similar yeah. to SEN. But if you're a, a uh, hedge fund, right, and you're on SEN, you can kind of see what all your counterparties are doing within that environment. And it's all sort of stored within BitGo. So in a similar sense, like it's kind of like SEN where you can kind of seamlessly instantly trade and settle with counterparties in the network. And from a lending perspective, what's interesting is you basically are, um, you know, with all the nonsense that happened last year, uh, one of the, you know, thinking about the nonsense that happened last year, one of the big issues was you'd have these these firms come and, and borrow and you never really knew what they were going to do with that money, so to speak. And yeah. I guess what's interesting about this, this sort of wall gardened approach is um, if you're a lender on the network and you extend capital to uh, Laura Arrow's capital, uh, you'll know that that can only be like used within that network. But then you can, because of that sort of safe rail or, or guardrail, um, you can then offer them loans with, with um, uncollateral, uncollateralized loans. So you get that capital efficiency and a bit of that peace of mind. So that's what he's building. And we talked about that. Um, but it raises a bunch of interesting questions that I think I could ask you, which is... Yeah, I was about to say that. Yeah. Like, what do you think went wrong? Like, what when you think about, like, what the main reasons for all the carnage was and, and what you'd attribute to it, probably too much growth and demand for capital capital without the right guardrails. But what, what's your perspective? The main factor here is greediness, uh, most and foremost. Uh, just the way different players kind of um, just interact with each other, right? When you see that you can get to a certain number, but I just need to get a little more leverage, right? And then, uh, or when you can also see that you can trade capital that it's not yours by coming up with some sort of asset that you can use as collateral. And uh, so everything, it's, it, it all comes down to falls into like the greediness side. And I think... A way to mitigate this greediness is um, by doing proper compliance or by running proper risk checks or apparently uh, what Matt is trying to build with Benko, right? So yeah, if you look at the human nature, um, there's a greedy, greedy side of us that, and I'm generalizing here, I'm not saying everyone is like that, but it's that thing of like the risk combined with the adrenaline and the dream of what could be and the what if, and then all together mixed up is just a great recipe for a big disaster. And uh, that's, and we can unfold it even a little more, right? I really like to look at the maps of how everything was like kind of connected when uh, someone like tries to like summarize it. 
And uh, yeah, and that's that's pretty much always like just few players that get really great in between between each other, and then everything just turns out into like a big fireball. A big fireball, indeed, it was. And so, thinking towards the future, like how are trading firms maybe? thinking about things differently, approaching the market differently. So what actually what he's trying to build is something that I've heard from a couple other um, companies as well, kind of an idea of settling as a service as well. But and also the idea of having a proper prime brokerage, right? Up until now, there were a couple large companies or three in crypto that were trying to do it and they really didn't succeed. Um, And uh, yeah, we need something more I mean, I'm just trying to think some of the counterparties were asking for like 100% collateral, 110% collateral. And uh, from a market making perspective, that sounds a bit like, it's almost like ridiculous for market makers because it's just, it really limits your capital for what you're trying to do unless you really want to hold an asset into perpetuity, right? And use that as collateral. But so that's like a normal ask, I guess, for um, other kind of players within trading. But um, there were points where there were times where it was like, yeah, completely uncollateralized loans that depending on who is asking for that, it just doesn't make any sense. Right. And to your point of like knowing more or less what strategies um, your customers are running, then you can know a bit better. You can assess better the risk of like how much collateral or what are the interests that you can give to this counterparty. My only question here, and I think it's a big thing in crypto, um, for this sort of entities, how do you keep privacy, right? How do you avoid your sales guy from telling someone else, this is what this guy is running? Um, And there's ways, there's many, many ways around it. Um, And I feel like that's a component that happens a bit often in crypto sometimes, but how do you keep it safe so that you can trust that the prime brokerage that you're working with is keeping you not only your assets safe, but also your strategy safe, right? And uh, there's um, Enclave is trying to do that, right? Through their secure Enclave. Um, yeah, and uh, I would, yeah, I would like to know how they, how they manage that. Yeah. Keeping the secret sauce safe. Exactly, because you do have access, right? When you sometimes it's it, all that it takes is just create a sub account into um, someone else's account, and then you can kind of see what they're doing. You don't have a whole picture because you're likely working with other similar um, structures, but you can more or less see what the play, where the play is going. Yeah, yeah, that's a fair point. Yeah, those are metrics that in the end, as the lender, you still need to monitor, right? Because that's what's going to trigger the alarms as to like, hey, this this uh, this is triggering like your your risk systems. Um, so maybe that person has to, needs to like bring more collateral collateral or like change the strategy to some direction. So yeah, good question. I would love to hear more about what they're <laughs> trying to build here. Well well I'll tell Matt to give you a give you a ping once the news comes out. Um, so when you think about how the market is going to evolve, what are you like, like, what what will trading firms do differently? Like, putting strategies aside, like operationally, um, are you starting to get a sense of how maybe they'll be structured differently? How maybe they'll engage with exchanges differently? What type of questions they're maybe asking exchanges? What type of questions they're asking counterparties? Yeah, I think a big one, and I think this is where what Bitco is trying to build comes in place 
is separating the exchange from um, just keeping the, the assets on it, right? And uh, and that's where take it uh, as an example, Deerbit, right? They use um, you can actually pass your assets on copper and then directly integrate it into the exchange, and then you keep your assets on copper while you can trade directly on on Deerbit. And this reduces uh, somewhat counterparty risk, um, if you want to call it that way. Although I believe Deerbit in the end also uses copper for their for storing the assets. So. Um, but yeah, so that's one thing that uh, most exchanges are moving towards that direction, right? And there, uh, Binance announced that I wouldn't be surprised if uh, Coinbase at some point also, you know, allows them, allows, I, I don't know if actually that, that's allowed with Coinbase, but at some point, like, hey, besides storing it with us, there's also these other options, right? Um, with some qualified custodian. Um, so that's definitely one thing. You're saying like, okay, I'll trade on you Coinbase, but I need... I need like many different providers that I can easily link up to through you versus like kind of managing it myself. Right. Instead of having everything just on BitGo or, or on Coinbase, or you can have like some of it on BitGo for whatever other reason and using those assets as well. But there needs to be someone in the middle that communicates all the different uh, risk layers, right? And all the different assets, like all the different risk on each platform. So, and again, I think that's one of the play where like BitGo is probably trying to build that from what you've described here. So yeah, and then from the other perspective, at least from the lender perspective, there needs to be better risk checks. And by having infrastructure like the one Bitcoin is trying to build, it's also an easier way to, um, to assess that risk, right? So going back to options, um, because we kind of were talking about lending, how do you think about um, how options can provide traders a way to to lever up, like as an alternative to maybe borrowing from a lending desk? So I guess the main way, way here would be, and I just want to keep it a little simple for just uh, in general, the audience, but if you are thinking, let's say of like opening a long position, um, you could think of it, let's say there's a classic one, like stock replacing with, uh, with options, right? Um, on paper, uh, one, and I'm going to go with traditional terms right now, but with one equity stock, it's equal 100% delta. So one delta, right? You can do, if you're like really long, you could, for instance, replace that position. You're trying to build a position by buying two call options with 50% delta. And this way, in situations like right now, you're kind of leveraging this upward trend. If you think that the price in the future will um, increase, you can just take advantage of the convexity of like low vol low vaults right now into the future as the as long as the the time that the price um, appreciates is faster than the time decay, what we call theta in options. Then you could like take advantage of this like options leverage by taking by taking advantage from one side for the convexity and from the other side also by just leveraging yourself since instead of like one equity stock, let's say you get like two this way. And so do you think that like that plays into why we're seeing a bit more activity in options because you can't really lever up as easily because there's not a surplus of leverage in the market right now post credit crisis? Not currently. I really think currently it's just um it's just traders or options traders collecting this uh, premium, right? Cuz that's 
at least the pressure so far the, 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 for, the, for the next one to three months is still like downward selling pressure, right? So if we see that changing, maybe. And really, it seems like it's kind of the same players that we have before, plus a few news, the new ones that we've grabbed through this bull market. But I don't think there's, it has to do with, uh, with any leverage right now. You mentioned um, earlier that the, the number of sort of um, institutional players, at least on operating within Paradigm or on Paradigm or through Paradigm, whatever the preposition is, is um, like, I, I think you said like about half, if I do the math right. Who, who left? Like who left and who's still here? A lot of them had to shut down last year, unfortunately, with all the May, June and uh, November events. Others are larger institutions. Um, I think it's no secret, right? Like some of the larger trading firms on the traditional side um, have passed operations, even on the option side, um, just until there's more certainty around uh, regulation, right? Many might even be looking right now at setting up um, offshore shops. And with offshore, I mean like fully offshore. I'm not even talking about VPN anymore, but like opening a shop in the Cayman and sending traders there and having traders live full time there, right? Uh, so yeah, so I think there's there's this little gap um, until they come back. I don't see that happening too far from now, to be honest. I mean, now it's the time to do any of these operational changes because the market is quiet. But yeah, I also don't doubt that once uh, the market starts picking up, they're going to be because they already have the setup, right? Uh, it's just about switching it on again. They'll be coming back soon. I thought it'd be interesting um, to maybe talk about a little bit about like how, like we've had traders on, we've had developers on who walk us through, you know, what they do, like how, how, how you sort of think through a strategy, um, how you're thinking through like building out, um, you know, layer two. I'm very curious to get a sense of like, you know, relationship management um, as a trading desk biz ops type of person or salesperson, what does that look like? How do you maintain relationships, which is basically a way to like bring more flow to the desk? What does that practically look like aside from like just hopping on calls? It varies a little bit from uh, in between my roles, right? Uh, ledger X with the exchange, it was more about with the current customers that we have, what are other features that we can add to make them trade more or make, or make them feel more comfortable? What are other products that they need so that um, they can enhance their strategies and they can just feel overall more comfortable with the portfolio with us? Um, that's a bit of like the, on the regulated exchange side, there was already a lot of organic um, onboarding coming through us because that was very early when it was the only exchange in the U.S. for that purpose. So yeah, it was more about um, connecting really with institutional counterparties and also later on, later on the retail platform came, but in, yeah, just trying to build it together. Paradigm, it is kind of, at first it does feel a little bit like the classic um, tech sales pitch, right? Because you're basically convincing them to use the platform. That said, personally, I think Paradigm was in quote unquote, like easy sell because the platform was just so great and so needed that any trader that saw it was just on board with it. And then from there, it's uh, helping them through their first trades and then uh, 
yeah, and then there's uh, if they need like any like more price negotiation, just uh, guiding them through like how they can do it through the platform and stuff like that. Um, <clears throat> and then with Ledger Prime with the OTC desk, I think that is that's where at least personally, um, where there's a bit more work because. There's from one side, you have the natural flow that you know is going to come every month because you know the strategy of your counterparty, right? So you can account for that. Then you have kind of like the, hey, come and go, or depending on uh, the one that like didn't have that much loyalty to you. So they start jumping around different desks to get the best price, right? Number one way, offering the best price. Well, some of them will always, that's like their loyalty to you, right? And they don't really care about anything else. But other ways could be, uh, depending on how tied you are to the counterparty, the collateral requirements or the collateral asset, but you can like play a little bit with that depending on their needs. There's also the part of um, knowing their portfolio or their position with you. Um, if there's something in the market that you think could be interesting to them, just like pay attention to them, right? It's not about, especially when the industry is so young, I've seen some desks that they're just trying to juice everything out of their counterparties. It's not really about that. It's it, I, we almost Ledger Prime prefer to show whatever is like market and makes sense, and then explain the reason of that structure, right? The reason we're doing it like that, and then if it works, it works. If it doesn't work, it won't work. It doesn't work, right? But it's about creating this kind of like almost a friendship with your counterparty. Did you use some of your? Um options lingo while you were in Greece? Did they know what you were talking about? Oh, right. But because of the Greeks? No. <laughs> um, not at all. I honestly, I tried. So yeah, so you know, we do this, uh, I guess, like sailing trip every year. And it's half crypto people, half not crypto people. So we try to keep it very non-crypto. But this year, we even have half of the trip because, yeah, our skipper got the anchor stuck and that broke the hull of the boat so we had to disembark absolutely insane yeah absolutely insane i just i just don't even know honestly you know the the best part of this is that uh about 3 30 a.m he was trying to pull the anchor and he made a comment and said oh this looks like triangle of sadness to me I don't know if you watched that movie, but it was really not the time no, to bring that up. Not not the time to make a joke like that, especially with choppy waters. No. Anyway, but that's like crypto. That was like that was twenty. That was that that the overnight of you waiting for the skipper to pull the anchor out of the water was twenty twenty two. Scuba divers coming in to save us. Yeah. Who would that be? <laughs> that's 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 Larry Fink. Yeah. <laughs> this, the 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 uh, scuba divers are the are the ETF filings. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, I guess to r r round things out, um, what are you most excited for um, going into the rest of 2023? We've got we've got six more months left in this year. We have. I'm um, excited for any regular story stuff to like just come more clear and stop, you know, getting news every two to three weeks. I uh, would love to have it just all at once. But yeah, I think it will get a lot calmer end of the year. Trading will come back because now it's summer. And as we know, people also want to rest in summer. So yeah, I think that's uh, kind of what I'm looking forward to the next six months, a bit more stability. More stability. Well, Laura, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. And The Scoop will be back with you again with another great guest. Have an awesome day.